book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. You can find it in your bulletin, and I believe it'll be projected up here on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Would you pray with me for a moment? God, we thank you for this time, and uh, every time that we open up your word, it is an opportunity for you to speak, and so we ask, God, that during this time you would speak to us powerfully, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit has to say, that you would speak to us not only uh, as a community, but you would also speak to us individually and personally, and you would remind us of the things that we need to be reminded of so that we may know that Jesus Christ truly is better. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We are going through a series through the book of Hebrews, and we're calling it Jesus is Better. If you really think about it, as a believer, if you are going to live the life of a believer and make the kinds of sacrifices that God may be calling you to make, at the end of the day, you have to be convicted of the fact that Jesus is better, that it is worth making those sacrifices, it is worth putting time into uh, spiritual disciplines, into serving the church, into relationships, and those kinds of things, that it is worth it, And in order to understand that it's worth it, you are going to have this conviction that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better than all of these things. And simultaneously, if you're not a believer, uh, if you are going to decide to turn, uh, put your faith and trust into Jesus Christ, you're also going to have to be convinced that Jesus is better, that his ways are better, that having a relationship with him is better. And so that's that's part of the reason why we are going through this series and the theme of the series. And it's a book that is addressed to Christian believers, Jewish Christians in particular, who are suffering, and as a result of their suffering, as a result of their persecution, they are discouraged and they are afraid. There is a danger for them to fall away, which for them means to revert back to their old ways of Judaism. And the author here is trying to essentially encourage them to press on, to persevere. Don't give up. Don't give up on following Jesus and turn back to your old ways, but continue to press on and follow him even in the midst of your present trial and present suffering. 
Now, I, let me also say this. The book of Hebrews is actually a really important book within the context of the entire canon of the Bible because one of the things that the book of Hebrews does is it shows us how uh, the New Testament authors in, interpret the Old Testament. So if you're somebody who thinks, well, the Old Testament is kind of irrelevant and doesn't mean that much, and I'm, or I'm not really sure how to approach and interpret the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews is really important because what it is, if you look at it, it's kind of like a collection of sermons. Uh, what the author does is he takes a text from the Old Testament, whether it's uh, Psalm 110, whether it's Psalm 2, uh, whether it's stories from Abraham, stories from Israel in the wilderness, in our case from the prophet Jeremiah. And essentially what the author is doing is he is preaching from these various Old Testament texts and giving exhortations based on these Old Testament texts. So what we're doing is uh, we're kind of uh, preaching a sermon on a sermon, right? Uh, a sermon on a, an exhortation uh, or exposition from an Old Testament text. And today we're going to look at something that I think is very important, but it's how Jesus is a better mediator of a better covenant. Now, in the previous chapter, if you were here last week, uh, there's a phrase there that says Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant. Uh, covenant. And so uh, even from the previous chapter, the author has in mind, let me explain why the new covenant is so much better. Now, uh, even though the book of Hebrews can be a little bit difficult to understand and interpret, uh, the nice thing is about this passage is I think the point of this passage is actually very, very crystal clear. Uh, do you know how I know that? Because in the very first verse, you don't get this often in Bible passages, but in the very first verse, he says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Uh, we have such a high priest, right? He's saying this is the point of all this stuff that I'm telling you, that we have this kind of high priest. For the last few chapters, that's what he's been saying. We have a certain kind of high priest, one who is perfect, one who is eternal, one who is not confined to the ways of the law, but one who comes after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the great high priest that we need. That's the point. So if we lose our place in some of these details, that's our anchor. That's what we hold on to. That's what the author is trying to say. Now, this particular passage, I think, gives us a couple threads, right? Like if you think about fabric, there's a couple threads that we can pull, and uh, each thread we pull is going to lead down this long and glorious path talking about how Jesus is so great. But I think the, the dominant thread in this passage is probably the one that has to do with covenant. So that's what we're going to talk about today, covenant. In the Bible, covenant is a very important concept, although we don't necessarily hear that word in our wider culture. But it actually used to be a very important way to form agreements between two parties in the ancient world. And not just within Judaism, but just in general. It was a very common way to form agreements in the ancient world. And what is a covenant? It is basically this uh, binding agreement, this legally binding agreement that binds two parties together in an intimate relationship of sorts. And therefore... It's a little bit different from, like, say, a business contract because in a business contract, you don't necessarily have to have an intimate relationship. But it's also more than a simple casual relationship or, like, a dating relationship because there's a legal aspect to it that legally binds two people together, two parties together. And so a covenant is not always ratified simply to exchange goods and simply to exchange services, but there is an all, there's an emphasis on sealing the relationship and of course the closest analogy to a covenant today would be the marriage covenant marriage covenant is this intimate tight close relationship but 
A marriage covenant is also a legal relationship. That's why you get a marriage certificate from the local mu municipality after you get married. In the Bible, a covenant is really important because that is primarily how God enters into relationship with his people, by way of covenant. Without covenant, there is no relationship. Now, the author here is saying that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. So if you look at verse 6, it says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As a covenant, he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. We're going to look at this passage, and we're basically going to see two reasons why this new covenant is better. The first reason is this. The old covenant was only a copy and a shadow, whereas the new covenant is the real and the true. And the second reason is the old covenant promises were conditional, whereas the new covenant promises are certain or guaranteed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first reason. The old covenant was only a copy and shadow, whereas the new covenant is the real and the true. Now, if you think about the word better, right, we've been saying Jesus is better. There's actually a lot of different ways you can understand and interpret how something might be better. You can say a certain brand of laundry detergent is better. Why is it better? Well, it's cheaper. It makes your clothes cleaner. It has a better fragrant. And that kind of comparison takes something that already exists and says, well, there's a better version of that thing that already exists. Now, when we talk about old and new covenants, there is a sense in which we can say that, um, but at the same time, that alone doesn't fully communicate why the new covenant is better than the old covenant because the new is not better simply because it is a, uh, a better version of the old, but there's also something qualitatively new about it, qualitatively different about it. Uh, if you're familiar, I mean, this is actually a really complex theolo theological topic that people debate about in terms of the continuity and discontinuity of the covenants. But basically what we're just saying is this. Uh, the new covenant is kind of like the old, but also there's some significant differences there. Uh, I think maybe a better illustration to illustrate this dynamic, I read from a book uh, this past week, and he says, you know, he's talking about when his children were young. Uh, he's a British guy, so he calls it football, but what he's referring to is soccer. He says when his children were young, he bought them like this little uh, soccer game, this table soccer game, where I guess like you kind of use your fingers and you play on a table and you kind of like right, kick the ball <laughs> to the goal. Uh, I don't know if we have that here, but uh, he, he got that for his kids. And, you know, it's not like the uh, original, the real soccer game, um, but it's kind of uh, a replica, a copy, or an imitation of the actual soccer game. Now, if you were to compare these two games, you would say something like, well, there's a similarity, right? They're both kind of like soccer. They both kind of take a ball and try to score it into a goal. But at the same time, if you really think about it, in its essence, they're not the same game, right? One game is played like on a table, but real soccer is different. You run around, right? You, uh, you kick the ball with your feet, and so the experience of playing that little soccer game on a table is going to be far different than actually playing a soccer game. Nobody, right, nobody forms a league around this little table soccer game. Nobody pays money to watch a little table soccer game. Nobody says, uh, let's broadcast this little soccer game on TV. Why? Because it's not the real thing, right? It's just a copy. It might be good, it might be fun in the moment, but it is not as good and not as glorious as the finals of a World Cup match, okay? 
The old covenant is a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So there are some similarities in terms of what it points to, what it reflects. But the new covenant is the reality of heavenly things. It is the glorious, uh, maybe original, you can say. It is the, uh, the finals of the World Cup. Uh, that is the new covenant. Now, the author here is drawing from Exodus 25 when God tells Moses on the mountain to construct the tabernacle according to uh, the pattern, right? So from the very beginning, when God first gives the law to the people of Israel, it was never meant to be the original. It was always meant to be the pattern or the copy or the shadow of the real thing. Now, if you've never seen a real soccer match, then uh, maybe table soccer uh, seems like a pretty decent game. That's what it would have been like for the Jewish people, right? They say, this is all we know. This is all we have access to. And maybe they learn how to master the table soccer game, but it's never good enough to give them what the real original soccer game was meant to give them. But once you find out that that little game played on the table, it's just an imitation, and there's something far greater and far more glorious and far more enjoyable, how can you settle for the copy? How can you settle for the imitation? If you are meant to play real soccer, it doesn't do you any good to master table soccer. That's what some in this community are tempted to do. They've been given Christ. They've been shown the glories of Christ and what he has accomplished, and they're saying, you've given me, you've shown me this glorious uh, original real World Cup soccer game, but I want to go back to table soccer. And they're tempted to settle. Now, the second thing we see here is the Old Covenant promises are so much better. That's what the author says. And they're better because in the Old Covenant, I mean, the New Covenant promises are so much better because the Old Covenant promises were ultimately conditional, whereas these New Covenant promises are certain. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, it's not saying the Old Covenant or the First Covenant or the law or anything in the Old Testament is bad or evil or even useless. It's not saying any of those things. It served a purpose in its time in that it revealed God's character and his will to his people. At the same time, what the author of Hebrews is saying is it wasn't without faults, right? Because what we mentioned last week is the law could not perfect us. The law could not bring perfection. There is no assurance under the Old Covenant because it was dependent or contingent upon our perfect obedience. And that's why God says through the prophet Jeremiah, starting in verses 8 and 9, he says, I am going to establish a new covenant one day, not like the one I made when I brought you guys out of Egypt, but a better one. And why does he make that promise to the prophet Jeremiah? What is wrong with this covenant? He says in verse 9, For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This was a covenant that was based on merit. This was a covenant that was based on obedience. It was one that said, you do this, and then you can know me and be in relationship with me. If you don't do this, basically the relationship is over, right? Now, a lot of relationships that we have are probably somewhat like that. So, for example, you have consumer relationships, and uh, you might have that kind of relationship maybe with a certain store or a certain brand. If they fail to provide you with a good or uh, service or product, then what do you do? You end that relationship and you go shop at a different store. Uh, an employer-employee relationship is a little bit like that. If you fail to do your job adequately, you get fired. You get let go. And 
That's a relationship that is based on merit. I think maybe we even approach some of our friendships and our romantic relationships like that. We say, okay, if you don't change or if you don't act like the way I want you to act or if you don't do this for me, then I'm not going to be with you anymore. Then the relationship is over. And I think maybe in many ways, that's our default way of approaching our relationships. Of course, a lot of religions are structured like that as well. And even though Christianity is not supposed to be structured like that, you still find a lot of Christian believers using Christianity in that way, saying that it is based on merit or self-righteousness rather than based on gospel and grace. But here is a problem with those kinds of relationships. Those kinds of relationships can be very tenuous because there is always a possibility that that relation can end at any time. That's the difference between going on a first date and being in a marriage. Uh, I, my guess is um, most people don't enjoy going out on first dates, um, especially if they're like blind first dates, because uh, right, first dates are usually very fake. <laughs> you always, you're always performing to a certain degree uh, because you know it's somewhat conditional. Uh, most likely on that first date, although I've heard people do this on first dates, but I think most likely on a first date, you don't divulge your deepest, darker, darkest secrets, and you don't reveal the most shameful thing about you, right? Uh, you don't explode in anger. You don't talk about your family drama. You don't talk about your sexual history. Uh, you don't usually do those kinds of things on first dates, anything that's going to deter the other person from seeking you. If anything, you are going to try to be on your best behavior, put on your best performance, try to be polite, try to be as funny as you can be, try to be as attentive as you can be, try to be as generous as you can be. Why? Because if you want that second date, you're going to have to earn it to some degree. Now, the Old Covenant is not quite like that because it is not ultimately based on somebody's personality or anything of that nature, but it's a little bit like that in the sense that it was conditional and it was based upon the perfect obedience of the people of God. Therefore, the relationship that the people of God with, uh, have with God is going to be a tenuous one because if there is no perfect obedience under the old covenant, there is no more relationship. That's why the author of Hebrews is saying the old covenant is not without fault because it could not ultimately do what we really need. Give us the assurance that we can know God even in spite of our sin, even in spite of our disobedience. Even though God is the one who introduces the old covenant, we see that's not ultimately his plan. God's plan is to establish a better covenant, and that better covenant comes in the pro promises we see in verses 8 to 12 from the prophet Jeremiah. Under the new co covenant, God makes the following promises. I'm going to list three of them here. The first promise you see in verse 10, he says, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, uh, here God is saying that the law is not something that we will simply obey externally, but uh, everything good about the law, everything uh, about its righteous character in terms of how it reflects the character of God, those things will now be written upon our hearts. There is a sense where we are going to be made new. We are going to be given new hearts. We are going to be recreated from the inside out not from the outside in. Uh, you know hip what a hypocrite is? People don't like hypocrites, even though all of us are hypocrites to a certain degree. 
hypocrites are people who care more about the external appearance, about presentation, rather than internal transformation. We, I think, live in a culture that is growing an appreciation for authenticity, right, for being real. What the new covenant promises is not a formation of better hypocrites. It's not saying we will make you better hypocrites, morally better people externally. The new covenant promises something so much deeper. You will be made new. The law that you are called to obey, it won't simply be a matter of external obedience, but the law will be written on your hearts. Your hearts will be made new. You will be given a new heart. You will be transformed from the inside out. Second promise, verse 11. He says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, this is significant because under the Old Covenant, you know what? Not everybody was actually allowed to uh, come into the presence of God. You had all these barriers. You had all these restrictions. For example, you have separate areas for Jews and separate areas for Gentiles. And, of course, the Jewish people were closer to where God's presence was than the Gentiles who were in the outer courts. You also have a separate section for men and for women. You also have a separate section that only uh, certain people, right, people in certain offices like the high priest could enter, which is the Holy of Holies, on a certain day. So uh, under the Old Covenant, you have all these barriers and all these restrictions. But here is the beauty of the New Covenant. The New Covenant says, says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That there will be no more barriers whether you are from a different nation, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you're man, whether you're a woman, whether you're a great high priest or whether you're not, all those barriers under, under the new covenant will come down and all people will be able to know the Lord from the least to the greatest. doesn't matter how much money you have. doesn't matter uh, your education. doesn't matter what kind of career you have. All of those things at the end of the day have no bearing in terms of whether you can come and know the Lord. Now, there's two clear examples that these barriers have broken down in the New Testament uh, that I can think of, at least. The first is uh, Jesus' life is really interesting, starting from his own genealogy, and I think it really typifies this. Jesus, he uh, received all kinds of people, from children to women to beggars to lepers to tax collectors, Uh, to people who were generally on the outside of society uh, during that time. And he allowed the least of these to come to him, and he received them because his acceptance of them is not based upon their age or their status or their class or their gender or their popularity or anything else like that. Their acceptance is simply based upon his grace and mercy. And all they did was they came with a sense of uh, humility, They came as beggars saying, I need you, Jesus. They came with a kind of faith that says, I'm willing to trust you, Jesus, and Jesus willfully received them. I think the the second powerful example that you see of this is in the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The new covenant is not for the Jewish people alone, uh, but when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, what happens? Salvation is no longer confined to the Jewish people, but bam, goes out to all the nations, to all the Gentiles beyond Israel. And so under this new covenant, uh, there is a sense in which all these barriers have broken down and all people can come to know the Lord. Now here's the third and the final promise in verse 12, and it says this, 
For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is a beautiful and glorious promise, is it not? But I think the truth of the matter is, sometimes we don't find it to be so beautiful and glorious because maybe we've gotten used to the fact that, yeah, we're sinners and we forget the impact that that is meant to have in terms of our relationship with God, and therefore we don't appreciate God's mercy as we ought. So uh, let's do a little bit of an exercise. If you can, whether you're married or not, I want you to imagine that you are married to somebody that you love deeply, someone that you want to be with. Now imagine your spouse has been faithful and kind and extremely good to you, beyond good to you, and you are so blessed to be with this person as a spouse. Now imagine what you do is you end up cheating on this person, and you wish you can take that back, that act, that act of betrayal back, but you can't. It's there. The damage that it causes that relationship is there. That feeling of disgust that you have for yourself because of what you did is there. That feeling that I could potentially lose this relationship with this person is there. That feeling that you have just made the gravest mistake of your life and now your life is completely changed and potentially destroyed at this point is there. And in that moment where you feel all these emotions and all these things, in that moment, you are at the mercy of your spouse. And that spouse who has been so good to you has every right to leave you and forsake you. They have every right to end that relationship and move on for you. Now, in that kind of case, right, you would understand, you would say, yes, I understand if you leave me. This is what I deserve for my great act of betrayal. But now imagine your spouse says, you know what, I will be merciful to you and I will remember your sins no more. Can you imagine that? What would you feel? How much relief, how much joy, how much gratitude, how much uh, a sense of being humbled by such forgiveness and grace and love would you feel when that grace is extended to what you probably feel at the time, the scum of the universe, right? The Bible likens idolatry to spiritual adultery, right? That's actually an illustration I'm drawing, a dynamic I'm drawing from uh, the Bible itself. Under the old covenant, what it's saying is this. Because of our rebellion, because of our sin, because of our disobedience, God should be done with us. Uh, he should divorce us because we have betrayed him in a way that a, uh, a spouse betrays another through adultery. And yet, under the new covenant, God says this, I will be merciful and I will remember their sins no more. Right? This is the vow. I will be your God and you will be my people in spite of your sin, in spite of your spiritual adultery. You see, these are the promises of the new covenant. And the prophet Jeremiah, he is looking forward to these promises, but we do not have to look forward to these promises anymore. Do you know why? Because we live in them. We have already received them. How? Through Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. Jesus, he ratifies this new covenant as our great high priest. When he died on the cross, the old covenant is crucified with him. The law is crucified with him. The passage we read before, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. I think it's a quote from Deuteronomy. Jesus receives the very curse of the old covenant of the law when he hangs upon the cross. And in that great act 
of sacrifice as our great high priest. He introduces, in, introduces, ratifies, and brings in a new covenant where those promises that Jeremiah looks forward to are now a reality for you and me. That's what it says in verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As a covenant, he mediates is better. Why? Since it is enacted on better promises. You see, friends, our relationship with God is no longer tenuous because it is no longer contingent upon our perfect obedience. God invites us to know him, and he will know us, and know us in a way where he will no longer remember our sins. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our great high priest, enacted a better covenant with better promises. This covenant gives us greater assurance than the old one, it is much more glorious than the old one. Again, it is like playing soccer in the World Cup Championship Finals and experiencing the glory of that victory. That is life under the new covenant. If this is a present reality, how could you go back to the old? Now, I understand most people here didn't come from Judaism, so you wouldn't revert back to Judaism. But how do you revert back to maybe your ways of performance, of achievement, of living each day as if it's your first date, of trying to um, carry the burden of being acceptable to others and acceptable to yourselves, of carrying the burden to say, I am worthy, I am righteous, of carrying the burden to create your own meaning and generate your own meaning in life, of carrying the burden of forming your own identity and your own significance. That's kind of the way of the old, right? What Jesus does is he says, there's this new covenant that I have enacted by my death, by my blood, as your high priest, offering the most perfect sacrifice that deals with sin once for all, Live in that new covenant. Live in those promises because they are glorious, they are righteous, and maybe most important, they are true. They are a true reflection of heavenly things. Not copies, not shadows, but reality. Live in those promises. And if we do, we will be a free people liberated from the burdens that we carry, liberated from the burden of sin itself, we will be free. Let's pray together.